Welcome to the Daily Real Estate Investor Podcast. I'm your host, Josiah Smelser. The Daily Real Estate Investor Podcast is the shared journey of building a real estate investment property business from square one. Join me as we learn together how to conquer the real estate game to reach financial freedom. Together, we will learn from people in all areas of real estate and business in our personal trek towards escaping the rat race. Be you. Do the work you love. Play the long game. What's up, folks? It's Josiah with the Daily Real Estate Investor Podcast. We're back with another episode of mind-blowing, earth-shattering real estate education. Today, we've got Casey Franchini on the show. Casey's out of Memphis, Tennessee. She's a mom of three, a stay-at-home mom of three, and she is building her real estate hustle. And she's putting out a lot of good content. Um... She's also uh, really making some traction with her uh, real estate portfolio. Um, I think that you're really going to identify with Casey as uh, her husband has a W-2 job and Casey is at home uh, making sure the kiddos are taken care of and and not not getting into mischief and harming themselves in some way. And uh, and she's building the real estate uh, business on the side with the goal of getting to enough passive income that if there were a job loss or something one day, she would have enough, her family would have enough income to pay their bills and not worry about things. Uh, Casey's doing some coaching and stuff. Um, she's got a great personality, a lot of energy, and um, I'm, I'm really impressed with her progress. I'm, I'm happy to have her on the show today. Um, I took about a month off. Uh, some of you guys were messaging me, and it was super encouraging to get your messages um, asking when this was coming back. I took a month off. It was crazy. Uh, during my month off, uh, so my last episode was the end of December. Uh, I got COVID. My parents got COVID. Um, everybody's okay and recovered. It, it was, we're very thankful for that, but, um, we had that going on. And then I had, it's funny, like taking a, taking a month off. I had the best month in January financially that I've ever had in my life, just from my real estate stuff. It's like it all came together in one month. Um, and we got a ton of deals done. And so stuff I've got going on right now, which I want to do a special episode on this, but we are building a 250 unit new construction apartment complex here in Huntsville. Super excited about that. My wife, my wife and I acquired a property. Don't want to dive into the details, but it, it added about eighty thousand dollars of profit a year to our portfolio. So, like, massive progress on that. Um, a lot of cool things going on with some flips we're doing, and uh, my partner and I have been repositioning our portfolio to drive profit up. And um, it's just been a really great time to be in real estate. And Casey and I are going to talk about this, but the market is sizzling on fire hot right now and there are not enough properties. So it's a great time to be an owner. Um, but anyway, I hope you guys are all doing well. I I know we've had some insanity, uh, over the last year, 2020, um, with COVID politically, just all the uncertainty going on. And then specifically in real estate, it was a roller coaster ride of going from in March, like the market's going to implode to now where it's like, I can't find a property because everybody's in a bidding war. So 
my advice is this. Um, I asked my mentor one time, Hey, is this a good time to buy? And you know, what do you think is going to happen if we have a, you know, presidency change and like all this? And he said, it doesn't really matter. Like you really can't predict what's going to happen with any of that stuff. Just keep doing what you're doing. So that'd be, that would be the advice I would give you is find out what you can pay for a property. If you can buy the property and pay what you want to pay or less, buy the property. Don't worry about all this other stuff. You don't know what's going to happen under Trump or what's going to happen under Biden. You don't know what's going to happen with COVID. And in this scenario where the the market completely implodes and, you know, it's it's uh, the walking dead, uh, like, does it really matter that your real estate's not cash flowing at that point? Like, aren't you going to be more concerned with, you know, figuring out who you're going to build your, 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 your new, uh, your new home with and how you're going to battle these zombies and that kind of thing. Uh, we're getting way off course here, but anyway, I'm just saying like these, these like massive, like way out, like, uh, crazy scenarios that everybody always talks about. Does it really matter that, that that could wipe you out? It doesn't because it would wipe everyone out. You're not going to be in any different of a situation if that happens. So stop, dwelling on these like far out, you know, way out there scenarios that would ruin, ruin anyone. And that being a cause for you not to make progress in investing. Literally, if you bought a property a year for 10 years and you paid those off, you would be a millionaire. Okay. It's that easy. And it's not easy, but it's that easy, right? It's, it's, it's that simple. I'll say. All you got to do is come up with a plan and stick to it. That's it. You can do it. I believe in you. I appreciate you listening to this. I know this is a long intro, but it's been a while. I love you guys. Let's bring Casey in. What's up, folks? We're back for another episode of the Daily Real Estate Investor Podcast. And today I've got Casey Franchini. And Casey puts out a lot of great content on Instagram. You need to go check her out. She's at Brick by Brick Wealth. Um, puts out a lot of uh, fun TikTok videos as well, which is something that <laughs> I probably need to do that I don't do. But uh, TikTok seems like it's, it's there's a lot of growth going on over there. So, but anyway, welcome, Casey. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And yes, I. Thought I'd play around with some fun TikTok and Reels videos, and everyone's laughing at my my dancing. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's awesome. Um, cool. Well, you know, you've been making a lot of progress with building your real estate business, and you're doing some coaching now. Um, so let's talk about your story, how you got started. First of all, tell us about you, where you live, your family, that kind of thing. Sure. So um, right now I live in Memphis, but I grew up in um, Southern California. I lived in Inland Empire, Orange County for like my whole life and until uh, I was 30. Yes, that tells my age. And uh, I started off, um, you know, in the Great Recession as a real estate agent. And um, because prices were so expensive out there, I wasn't really doing well as a listing agent because I looked so young and all the houses were so expensive. Nobody wanted to list our house with someone who looked so young because, you know, they were million dollar houses. Sure. So I found my niche um, working with real estate investors, helping them find flips. And I saw like the power of real estate investing and I wanted to do it. Um, flipping obviously wasn't going to be for us. Um, and we tried looking up some rentals around there, but it was still expensive. And, you know, we didn't know anybody. 
that owned rentals, even though I worked at a real estate company, there, there just wasn't a lot of real estate investors um, in my office. So we didn't get into real estate investing until we moved to Memphis. My husband got a really good job offer doing something he loved. So we moved across the country with my two little kids. I had a newborn at the time. And we started buying rental properties in uh, Memphis and we've not looked back. It's been really amazing because it's, you know, given us a second income and you just, we go slow at our own pace and we do our 20% down and it doesn't take a lot of time. I feel like so many people, when they reach out to me, they're ready to get going and, you know, I want to do the burn method or I want to make this my full-time job. I'm like, you totally can, but you know, you don't have to do that. <laughs> it yeah. doesn't have to be a full-time gig, you know, sure. it's. It's supposed to be fun, uh, at least for me, and you know, be kind of carefree and go as you go, and you know, not make things such a big deal. So um, that's kind of my philosophy: is making real estate easy and fun, and not making it, you know, hard and stressful. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you bring up a point that I, I, it always has amazed me: the number of people that work in selling and brokering real estate that don't own any real estate. Like, I don't get it. But like I worked at CBRE in the past and some of my best friends were some of the brokers. I was on the valuation side doing commercial appraisal work, but I'm a broker myself. And even on the residential side, so many of the agents and brokers that I know, they help people buy and sell real estate all day long. They don't buy any themselves. And I don't really get that, but it was the same way at CBRE. These, a lot of these commercial brokers, some of them would participate in some of the deals they would sell, but they, they were making so much money and they were just taking the money and spending it and not buying any cash flowing real estate, which is insane to me. Um, yeah. Cause that's how you build wealth. Like one thing's a job. The other is working for you while you're sleeping at night, you know, 24, seven, 365. it's working for you and making you wealthy. And so like, I don't get that, you know what I mean? But yeah. you were smart enough to transition over to this other and, you know, you bring up another point, which is, you don't have to quit your nine to five job to do real estate investing. In fact, it's probably better that you don't quit it before you get going, right? Because you you need money to buy properties and you need to be able to get qualified to buy properties. And there's ways to buy properties without getting qualified through the conventional routes and all that stuff. But like, if you don't have any income and you've just started a little side hustle job and you just quit your nine to five and your spouse doesn't have a nine to five, it's going to be challenging to get your properties to begin with. So like I like the strategy of kind of using your income while building the side hustle. And then once the side hustle gets going enough, then you can transition. So like in my own life, I got sick of my nine to five. I hated sitting in a cubicle. So I started my own appraisal business on the side. Appraisal business has not made me wealthy by any stretch, but it let me quit my nine to five. I use the appraisal income to invest in real estate and spend time investing in real estate. And that's made me wealthy. So it's not like appraisals glamorous. Actually, don't really love appraisal, but I do love the fruits of what appraisal has allowed. You know what I mean? So, I love that um, you made that transition, and now you're you're doing what you're doing by investing, and you're even okay with doing the twenty percent down method. And that's something else, like Air, um, Airbnb. Uh, the Burr method is not the only way to invest in real estate. Right. Right. It's the most popular. Everybody wants. It's the to most do popular it, because know. it was on bigger pockets, and it, yeah. it is a cool concept buying something distressed, getting it fixed up, getting it rented, refining, getting most of your money back, if not all of your money back. It's it's really fun. But in reality, it's also not as easy as it sounds, right? I've yeah, done it's it a, a lot of work. I've done too. it a ton. And, 
sometimes your appraisal comes in low and you leave 20 grand in the property and you're like, wow, you know, I just locked in 20 grand and I spent six, six months working on this. And, and by the way, here's another thing to think about. When you buy the property, there's closing costs, right? When you refinance the property, there's closing costs. So you're getting hit by closing costs twice there. And yes, you can factor that in, but that's, you have to, that's another calculation that you're not making when you're doing the 20% down, right? And then there's right. all the extra. Also the, li the listing agent, you know, or, you know, whoever, the other side's likely going to bring a buyer that you're going to have to buy or sell it to pay the commission out too. So people forget about commission payment yeah. agent. Yeah. And yeah, so there's more than one way to accumulate real estate in, in, in your portfolio. Burr method's one of them. Putting 20% down is another. If you don't have a lot of time, putting 20% down is a good option, you know, and getting something turnkey can be a good option. There's, there's turnkey mm -hmm. options there. Just depends on which way you want to go. So tell us more about, you know, how you got going on your first deal, what your first deal looked like, how you funded that, how you've bootstrapped yourself into that, how many properties you have, that kind of thing. Sure. So, you know, we first moved here, like I said, I moved here, um, 2013 and we bought our first, our primary residence. It was a fixer. Um, our first house we ever owned. So we put a lot of money into it. We're matter of fact, we're still fixing it. We're about to do our kitchen eight years later. <laughs> so um, it's a fixer in itself, a lot of money put into this property. So when we first moved here, you know, like I said, we spent a lot of money already. So we wanted to buy rentals, um, but we didn't have any cash really to do that. Not enough to be safe. We had money, but we're, no, we're not very risky people. So we want to make sure we have X amount of dollars before we feel safe putting it somewhere else if it's not in our bank account. So my husband's like, well, Casey, if you want to buy rentals, then you're going to have to figure out a way to make some money. And I'm like, well, shoot, I've got a two-year-old, a three-week-old and a cat, and I am not going to go get a job. I'll tell you that, that you moved me out of California to Memphis. I am not going to get a job. <laughs> I'm going to stay at home mom, damn it. <laughs> so, uh, but I was like, well, I still got to make some money. So what can I do? You know, and I wasn't going to let anything hold me back. Um, I knew I had to take care of my kids at home, but I still wanted to buy that rental property. And my husband, you know, made it had a W-2 job. So we knew what he made and we had to use that for expenses and stuff like that. So I thought, well, what can I do to make some money? I got to think of something besides going to get a job at Starbucks, you know? So, and I didn't want to be a real estate agent again because I was over showing properties. Let me tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, well, what am I good at? Well, I like crafts. I like to make crafts and glue stuff and, you know, uh, glitter. So I started a little Etsy business, um, selling handmade items. I bought like a, a little die cutting machine. People call, I got a cricket. There's also a silhouette for any of the girls listening that like to make crafts and make shirts and tumblers and stuff like that. So I bought one of those machines They're like 300 bucks. And I was worried that that was such a big expense. Like, Oh, what if I don't make $300 back to pay for this machine? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like looking back, I laugh now. But uh, so I sold little like $5 stuffed animals. Uh, I bought them for a dollar at the Dollar Tree. And then I put little kids names on them and sell them to them for Easter for five or $7. And then I would graduate to start selling um, bridesmaid gifts, wedding gifts and stuff like that. They're personalized and sell them on Etsy, also local Facebook groups. So about a year and a half uh, later, about two years, I had saved $20,000 from that. And I was, you know, working upstairs in my craft room um, on the weekends after during nap time when Blake got home from work. And I was just determined that I was going to make this money and make something of myself um, and not just be this mom, stay at home mom with a degree that's not providing for her family, you know. So there's a little bit of that there too that kind of felt bad about myself. I was like, well, here I am. I don't stay-at-home mom now, not contributing financially, and what's my self-worth and all of that. So um, 
making money on Etsy helped and it helped us save for our first down payment. So we were able to buy our first property in East Memphis. We were really concerned about Memphis. You know, it's one of the highest crime cities in the country. Um, and really that depends on where, not everywhere in Memphis is bad. Just mm -hmm. like when you think, oh, Compton and Inglewood, like, ah, Crips and Bloods, you know, um, not everywhere there is bad either. So you just have to know how to pick out the specific streets and just, you know, be careful and don't go there. So, but we wanted to make sure that we were investing somewhere solid that was appreciating good neighborhoods. So we bought a $92,000 house in a B-class neighborhood with a good school. We put 20% down. We did all the rehab ourselves. We do all of our own rehabs and we fixed it up really nice. We even scraped the ceilings. We went a little above and beyond. <laughs> I wouldn't do that again, um, but it's been great. I mean, we still have, um, we still have that property and it's probably worth, um, you know, 180 now or 190 probably. Wow. And we make 500 a month positive cash flow on that. So it's been really great. And now we, we have total six houses, um, five we run out, one we live in, and we buy one or two a year, just slow and steady. And we make sure, like, I feel like the key that some people forget and that I'm always trying to harp into people when I talk to them is you can get the best deal in the world. You can make it look the nicest on the block, but if you don't put in a good quality tenant, all of your hard work goes down the drain. Um, not putting in a tenant that's going to smoke, not don't put in a tenant that's going to give you surprise pets, you know, do your credit checks, make sure they have a job and have been working there and they're not lying. You know, so you got to really do your due diligence and, um, checking out your tenant. Absolutely. Yeah. The placing of a good tenant is so important. And if, if we have done one thing right in building our portfolio, it's been properly screening tenants. And I'll tell you what. I was so thankful that we bought our portfolio is is B class properties. We just we wanted that sweet spot of lower maintenance tenant properties are appreciating a little bit higher clip, a little bit lower cash flow than C, but we have less headaches because we own some C. We had a lot of problems. I'm not knocking C if that's your strategy, but you're you got to know what you're going to be dealing with if you're going that way. So we chose B. Well, when all this COVID stuff happened we didn't have one single tenant miss one payment. And we had one lady that um, they closed down her hair salon. All of our, most of our stuff's in Fort Worth, Texas. So they closed down her hair salon. She said, Hey, they closed me down for 30 days. Can I'm, I'm, I've, I've got some money, but I don't have enough. Can I pay you like two weeks late? We said, Hey, no problem. You know, we let her pay two weeks late. She, later, she actually paid. We didn't charge her any late fees. Then they opened her hair salon back up. She went back to work. That was the worst problem we had. So that's amazing. I was I was so thankful because we screened our tenants. We we really looked closely at do they have good um, work history? Do they have you know what what does their criminal record look like? That kind of thing. What's their credit score? And like we would we would rather wait and have one month of vacancy and find a great tenant than we would just put somebody in there. So those of you who have your you know your first property or you've got a vacancy right now. Like, be careful. I'm not, I'm not saying like you can, like, if you've got a C-class property, obviously like you, you start lowering the threshold for what's going to qualify and stuff. And, um, I had Rick Jarman, uh, on an episode a while back, he had a hundred properties. All of his were section eight. Um, and he was getting checks directly from the government. That's a different animal because you're getting your, you're getting your paychecks from the government. Right. So, and he would still screen his tenants and make sure that, that he wasn't going to have drug problems, and, and other things of that nature in his properties that he's going to have to deal with. 
But um, but when you don't have Section 8 money coming directly from the government and you're having to collect the check from the tenant and you deal with the evictions and everything else that goes along with it, like be careful with who you put in there. So, true. so how, how have you gone about screening of your tenants? Well, I'll tell you, I made some mistakes at first. <laughs> I did. Um, in the beginning, my thought was, yeah, we have properties in B and C class neighborhoods and okay. I'm 100% with you. B class is so much easier. Yeah. Um, yeah. You don't necessarily make as much. I mean, in some cases as you can in higher risk areas, C and D class neighborhoods, but it's so worth not having the headache. Um, oh, plus tenants care about their credit. They would be embarrassed if you ever had to take them to court. Like, you know, it's just a different kind of person um, in general, generalizing, absolutely in generalizing. But um, we have great tenants now. But in the beginning, oh man, I made some mistakes. In our C-class neighborhoods, I thought, well, everyone that's renting in this neighborhood must have bad credit. Why run it at all? (laughs) (laughs) Why? Why would I want to even know? So that was a bad mistake. I had one lady who, she at least she was very clean um, and organized and she didn't mess anything up, but she moved in, she paid rent. And then all of a sudden after like five months, she just disappeared. She Mm. just left. And I was like, what the heck? She called me and she said, oh, we moved out or I moved out. And her ex-husband has started moving into, I didn't know, it was a crazy situation. And I said, okay, uh, well, I mean, I guess nothing I can really do about it, you know? So she said, the keys are on the counter. And I go in and she stole my lawnmower that I let her use. She stole my firewood rack, but at least she left the place clean. So then come to find out. Yeah, at least not to clean. So it was a She was a clean thief, right? She was a clean thief. (laughs) But, you know, this is why she moved out because they turned off her utility. So Mm. out here we have MLGW, which is Memphis Light, Gas and Water. It's one utility company, covers everything. Well, she had worked for that company, which is what I thought should be a good tenant, even though I didn't run her credit. She worked for them for 15 years. So I thought, wow, this lady's got a solid job. She's had the same job for 15 years. She must be reliable. She must be dependable. And she must pay her bills on time because she's got the same job forever. Well, guess what? She hadn't been paying her utility bill to the own company that she works at. And she owed them like $3,000 or more. So they turned off her utilities. That's why she moved out. They turned off her utilities and they wouldn't turn them back on in her name. I'm like, and she works there. But I would have known she had bad credit had I checked. Mm. And then we had another tenant who I was really anxious to get someone in. Uh, It had been like, it was in the winter time and I wasn't getting a lot of interest and I was worried. And I was like, you know, I guess I got to get someone in bad move. Don't do that. Like you said, and like I tell, I preach now, no tenant is better than a bad tenant. We let this couple in, they said they were engaged and, you know, anyways, (laughs) and um, she ended up, they got, they broke up, right? Of course. And one of them moved out. Well, the one with the job moved out. The one that didn't have the good job stayed. That one ended up getting Pitbull and not telling me. Mm, Yeah. Baby Pitbull wasn't trained. She broke my gate, my vinyl gate. She broke my brand new glass security door with, uh, she said her son's basketball hit it, who knows? Um, So the dog was pooping all over the front yard, running around the neighborhood with no leash. I'm like, oh my God, someone is going to sue me because their little kid's gonna get bit by this baby pit bull. And she was smoking in the house, smoking all sorts of things. And I'm like, I did not vet these people well enough. I did not do my due diligence. I did not run their credit. I thought, oh, well, the guy is a veteran and he's, he gets a paycheck, you know, from disability and that's good enough. 
wasn't good enough. I didn't check them both out. I didn't think, well, what if somebody moves out? You know, they both have to have good credit. They both have to be dependable and reliable. And I didn't do it. So, oops. Hey, <laughs> so thanks. I can tell you, I can tell you now we run background checks. Uh, I want to know if they have a criminal history. They better have a decent credit score. And obviously my better houses in my mind, they require a better credit score. Um, they're nicer houses. Some of them have granite countertops. They require a higher end person. So, um, you know, you got to have good credit. You have to have a job and you can't be bouncing around from target to horse trainer. I mean, I want to know that you can commit to something and stay there. So yeah, we have strict qualifications now. <laughs> yeah. And you know, another, another good tip on screening tenants is ask for some work references and ask for past landlord references. And if they can't give you one, um, you know, it's probably a good sign. And I would actually call their, their past landlords. And if you ask them, Hey, I'm, you know, I've got an application by so-and-so for this, this property, um, you know, I'm, I'm using you as a reference. And then they, they just say no comment. Uh, that, that is a comment on whether you should rent to them or exactly. not. So read between the lines there, but, um, you, you can decline, uh, you can decline potential tenants based on things like credit and do they have a job? And so don't feel like you're in a bind when somebody applies, that's not meeting what you're looking for. And you're like, well, I can't, I can't decline this person. I might get sued or whatever. Just make sure and keep proper records that you're screening everyone the same way. You're mm -hmm. giving everyone equal opportunity and a fair chance at renting your place. And you're declining based on criteria that you can decline on. So um, that's important. But okay, so let's talk about uh, you said you, you scraped the ceiling on this first property. Yeah, I don't know why. But every when I have properties with popcorn ceilings, and I get a quote on people scraping that stuff, they're always telling me this insanely expensive number. It is. How mm -hmm. hard was it to scrape the ceiling? Because I've never done that. Um, it's, it's that it's messy. Yeah. Uh, it's a lot of prep work because what you have to do is you spray the ceiling with water, you soak it. And hopefully the ceiling's not painted. If it's painted, if, it's, if someone's painted their ceilings, then that's uh, much, it's much harder to do. So hopefully it's not been painted. It's just some old popcorn acoustic ceiling. You spray it with water and then you get almost like a long trowel, like a long flat shovel sort of thing. And you go scrape it. So you met overhead. So you imagine your triceps and biceps, all your shoulders working out. It's a lot of manual labor, um, really sore after, and it takes a long time. So then once you scrape the ceiling and you get all the popcorn off, then you have to mix up your mud and you have to flatten or smooth the ceiling. Mm -hmm. And then you have to sand it. And then you have to mud it again and sand it again. So you have to basically cover all your walls of plastic, all your floors of plastic, because it's very dusty and very messy. Mm -hmm. Even though you're scraping it down, it like plops down like plop. Um, you're still having to stand and it gets dusty afterwards. So it's a lot of prep work. It's not so much the scraping that's the hard work. It's the, the mudding and floating afterwards mm. to make your ceiling smooth. And then all the, the dust and mess. That sounds super messy. It is very <laughs> messy. Um, okay. So, so uh, you mentioned your husband's got a W2 job. Mm -hmm. um, what's your strategy on financing these properties you're buying? Are y'all using Fannie Mae through him or how are you doing that? Yeah, through him. Um, I don't have a W-2 job, so I don't qualify for any loans. So we do put them both in our names um, since it doesn't really matter because I'm not going to get my own 10 properties since I don't have a job. So yeah, we finance them, the regular 80-20 loans, and it's, it works for us. We like be, you know, doing it the safe way. And you know, it, it's the more properties you get, the quicker it is to resave for your down payment. And we yeah. do like to get properties that need a little bit of work. Um, sometimes, I mean, 
we're, I'll tell you, we like to rehab, but we also, I have three children and he has a job. So we're not looking to spend every waking moment at a property doing a full burr job, a full gut rehab. We don't really want to do that. We want to keep it fun. We don't want to get burnt out. So we like cosmetic, cosmetic rehabs. Um, we've taken on some bigger jobs, but um, not every time. And we do first look for the properties that don't need as much work because it's quicker to get a tenant in there and start making money. And so what it costs a little bit more, um, we'll get appreciation over the long run. We're, long run, we're in it for the long term. So I'm not looking to score big um, right up front. I'm just looking to get a nice house in a good neighborhood that might need some work. We can make it worth a little more and put a good tenant in there quickly and sure. keep it fun. Yeah. Um, so one thing that I learned uh, when my wife and I transitioned from the W2 world to running our own businesses, she's a counselor. She runs her own counseling business. I do all the real estate stuff, broker, appraiser, and managing investment properties, flipping, all that stuff. Um, one thing I learned is uh, this last year we bought the max of what Fannie Mae will allow you to finance using my wife's income, even though she is a 1099, like she's, she's doing contracting with someone. She's not W2 because <laughs> she had two years of job history at the same, with the same, uh, place 1099ing her. So if you don't have a W2 job, you kind of hear, if you don't have a W2, you can't get qualified. It's not true. It's just a lot more difficult, right? So, uh, if you just change jobs and you just started your own business, you're not going to get qualified. But if you've got some work history there and you've been there for years, like I, I will have finished two years running my own business. Um, once I get this next tax return filed and I just talked to my lender and she was saying, yeah, I need your next tax return that you'll be qualified then because then we got two tax returns with all your, your own business income on there. Um, but she got qualified and we bought something through her and she's not, she's not W2. So for those of you out there that are listening that are running your own businesses and think that you can't use traditional Fannie Mae conventional loans, you can just try it after you've had that job for two years. So yeah, they just, they want to see consistent income, yeah. you know, not say, Oh, I got a big paycheck in December yeah. and one in March and that's yep. it, you know, yep. for the year, they want to see at least you're making steady money for a period of time. Yeah. And so, and so like once y'all are maxed out with your husbands at 10 and you've been running your business for over two mm -hmm. years, you'll be able to also, you know, get yeah. some more if you want to. Um, that's the plan. That's yeah. The plan. Okay. So, and then let's see, what did you just, you, oh, I know what I was going to ask you. How are you managing these? Are you doing it yourself? I Yeah, I do okay. it. Mm -hmm. So yes, how, how are you, what, what processes and, and stuff do you have in place for that? Um, I, I will say off the bat, we don't use any fancy apps or software. Um, um, we, I use an Excel spreadsheet to keep track of everything. I do my own taxes too. Don't tell everybody. I mean, well, no, you are. <laughs> <laughs> it's One out. Your secret's out. I know, secret's out. Everyone Let on the podcast, work. don't tell anyone. <laughs> But it gets more complicated. I guess I'll hire somebody, but it's still pretty easy to do no, it. That's myself. good. Yeah. So, um, but I manage them all myself. You know, I advertise for the tenants. I get them in. I, I do the showings. I get the applications. I manage the lease renewals. They all have my cell phone number. So they text me when they have problems. And, you know, like I said, the key is to get good tenants because most months, like I haven't talked to a tenant in months. You that's know? awesome. I, sometimes my tenants will call and say, I deposited the money in your bank. Thank you. You know, that's the kind of calls that I get. Yeah, there's not a lot of issues. You know, we might have made a might have last year gone to a tenant property twice, or I sent someone to do a a repair, and that was it. That's awesome. You know, it's funny yeah. you say that because we manage, I guess, three of our properties ourselves. No, wait, mm -hmm. we manage we manage five, and I never hear from them. Yeah, so I 
I don't know where this concept of like the tenants are going to drive you crazy. You'd have to use right. a property manager. We have a property manager on our stuff in Texas because for sure, you know, it's 12 it's hours, Texas. it's 12 hours from me, you know, but, <laughs> yeah. um, uh-huh. the stuff here, we always talk about, we have like the best tenants in the world because we literally never hear from them. Uh, it's amazing. So, I, one of my tenants, yeah. she even has her own guy come f- do minor repairs. Oh, I had my guy come do uh change the filter in the HVAC and, uh, you know, he fixed my outlet. I'm like, okay. Yeah. You know, sweet. Stay forever. Funny story along those lines. Um, we had we had a vacancy open up in one of our properties, and the guy that applied, we had a company helping us um, screen tenants and and manage the application process. One of the guys that applied, he said, "You know, I'm I've, I've got great um I've got great income, great work history, no criminal record, great credit score." He said, "But I'm very very particular." He'd say he said, "I would I would say that I'm OCD." you know, about little things. And I said, okay, here we go. You know, yeah. I was like, this is going to be a nightmare uh, to manage if I self-manage this. So what I said, what I said was, okay, we'll, we'll accept you, but we're going to write something in your, uh, your lease here that says if any repair that's under $300 in cost, you're going to handle yourself and, and send us receipts and we'll pay you back. Best decision I ever made because He'll call and say, you know, the handle is is loose on this toilet or whatever. And I'm like, that's under 300 bucks. Just fix it and I'll pay you back. And he'll go fix it. And he like right when he moved in, he gave us he gave us like 20 items like that. And I was like, okay, none of this stuff is big. Like, I'm happy to pay for it, but I'm not going to be sending guys over there that charge me 100 bucks an hour to tinker around with all this little stuff that's not really that bad. He got it all fixed. We never hear from him. So like, it's perfect. He, like, Does he fix the stuff himself? He fixes it himself. And it's not big Sweet. stuff. Like if it were a big deal, yeah. we would totally have somebody go over there, but it's little, it's little stuff that he just really particular about. So I think like learn how to learn how to properly manage and train your tenants. I heard that one time on a bigger pockets podcast. And I love that. Like train your tenants up front, like what, mm-hmm. what is expected and how you're going to interact with them. And if you teach them to call you all the time, they will, right? And if you set them up to be able to make auto draft payments, you've got you've got the property in good condition when they move in. You take care of stuff when it breaks quickly. Like you're gonna have happy tenants, and that's gonna make your life as a landlord good. You know what I mean? Yeah. So- but the same goes for the other way. Um, like you don't want to be too lenient and you know break your own rules and let them slide on things because they'll start taking advantage of you. Yeah. You have to not have such a big heart, unfortunately, and stick to the lease, or some tenants would just walk all over you. Yep. Yeah. It's it always goes back to the lease for us. You know, yeah. this, this one tenant. He asked us one time, um, hey, you know, I've got I've got a loose handle on this. I need you guys to come over and fix it. And I said, you know, we're going to go back to what we agreed on in the, in the lease. You you agreed to fix this stuff for us and bill us. He's like, oh, you're right. You know, so he went and did it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But anyway, OK, so so you've got you've got five properties right now. What is your goal with this? Which wh- why are you doing this? I know it's I know it's a lot of fun, but what's the family goal? Do you all have a goal with this is for passive income or what? Um, yeah, I mean, for passive income, and I feel like, you know, people talk about financial independence and all that. And, and I've never really been, um, I've never really researched a lot about financial independence. What's your fine number and all of that. But in our own minds, without really even knowing what that meant, I guess, uh, we were kind of going for 100000 a year in passive income. And if we could have that, then that'd be kind of like, all right, well, our life is pretty good. You know, my husband doesn't have to work. If he gets fired or laid off, who cares? We're not scrambling, you know, and we'll have all of our stuff paid for. So that's the goal. Um, we're over halfway there. 
So we don't know, don't need that many more properties to reach that. We need probably 10 to 12 paid off properties in order to make a hundred thousand a year passive income. So that's the initial goal. Um, but I know that the more properties we get, the quicker we can buy more. And I know that we will, you know, we'll end up with more than that, but that's just the initial goal. We didn't get to buy any last year because of coronavirus and the election and the economy. I wasn't quite sure. And like I said, we're really risk averse and safe. So I wanted to make sure I knew how to, you know, what my investment strategy was going to be. Um, and I wanted to make sure I knew who was running the country first. So I knew how to plan for that. Yeah. So we're a little behind this, um, behind our traje- trajectory of one to two properties a year. So we've got some catching up to do this year. Yeah, it's it's been a really interesting time in the real estate market from it feels it feels like such a manic market to be a part of because in March we had we had um, 10 properties in our portfolio and then we had 10 flips going on and February and March happens and they come and basically they just shut the country down on a dime and we have 10 flips that are ongoing like people are supposed to be in these properties fixing them up and you know all of a sudden everyone's terrified about getting sick and dying which is understandable <laughs> right like you don't want to die while you're fixing up so it's and like who it's would ha- think we'd be thinking about that who would exactly. ever think that would be a, yeah. a concern and not, and not only that another scary part as as the owner of these properties was every time i get on the news and read the news they're talking about how the real estate market is going to implode every article i read then and i'm like wow so it's, this went from like on fire to going to implode overnight, you know? And, and I, I was co- talking to my lenders and my lenders were telling me, uh, we don't think the secondary market's going to do refinances for you guys on these properties. Cause we, we put them on the market. We would get them under contract to sell the, the buyer would start watching the news or read something about how the market's going to implode and they would back out. They wouldn't, they wouldn't close on the deal. We had one at full price fall through twice. People just walk away in the middle of it cause they're scared and rightfully so, you know, I get it. But so we had 10 flips ready to sell and we couldn't sell them at that moment. And so we're like, okay, we're going to have to rent these out. Well, the funny thing was people wanted to get out of apartments. They didn't want to live close to somebody else and catch COVID. They wanted to live by themselves with their family. That's right. So these things, we put them up for rent. These things rented so fast. Like I could not believe it. Fastest I've ever rented our properties. We were so thankful for that. So we had these rented cash flowing properties that were going to be flips that were financed with hard money went to refinance them and nobody would do the refinances because they're like the secondary market stopped. Everybody's trying to see what's going to happen. And so we're in, and our hard money lender said, Hey, I want my money back. <laughs> and we're like, wait a minute, you gave us 12 months. We're like five months in. What do you mean you want your money back? He was like, I don't think that any, they're going to refinance, refinance all the, all the deals we made loans on and we need more liquidity. And so we were in this bind where the hard money guy wanted his money back early and the Fannie Mae people wouldn't do refinances. And we were like, they were reading these articles about how the market's going to implode. What'd you do? Oh my we, gosh. We worked through it. We finally found a lender that was able to get all of them refinanced. We cash flowed on all of them. We held on to them. And now we got people calling us off the hook, trying to buy these from us when they're rental properties. And we've sold two. We'd put two up for sale recently where the tenant moved out and we put it up. So it's kind of like a, a flip, but it's been, we've held it for more than a year. One of them we just made a hundred grand on, and we would have sold that flip back in March if we hadn't had all this craziness happen. But it's been such a manic market because in March it was like, hey, the sky is falling, and then flash forward to now, early February, late January when we sold that property, and people are literally fighting over real estate. So yeah, I'm it's curious, ridiculous. I'm curious what the mar- the Memphis market looks like because Memphis 
uh, I looked at Memphis and I know there's a lot of like Memphis invest is there, right? They do that turnkey yeah. deal where they, I'm sure you're familiar with them, but mm-hmm. Memphis is a Memphis was, I'd be curious what you say about this was a good rent ratio market and rent ratio. I mean, the monthly rent divided by the purchase price, right? So like the 1% the rule. The 1% rule. So like uh-huh. if it rents for $1,000 and you buy it for 100,000, you've got a 1% house. So Memphis was good because there was a lot of deals like it rents for 1,000, you can get it for 75, right? So Absolutely. over 1% ratio. What are you seeing now with the Memphis real estate market? Those same houses that were 80,000 are now 120. Mm. Um, the houses that were 120 are now 180, 190. Yeah. They have gone up a lot, but I will say interest rates have also gone down for investors. Yep. Now, like a couple of years ago, it used to be that interest rate for an investor was about two points higher than a owner occupied loan. So if interest rates were 5%, it'd be seven for investors back then. Then last year, when the pandemic started hitting, um, I'm sorry, they were 1%. Now they're 2%, two points higher. So that kind of changed. But since interest rates have gone down so much, like a couple years ago, interest rates were 5% when I bought my rentals. Now they're 3%, 3.5%. It really gives you an extra almost $40,000 in purchasing power. So it kind of balances out. So even though there's properties, you know, like right now we're looking at properties in Olive Branch, Mississippi, and even a little bit farther out in some more uh, suburban cities, not in Memphis, like uh, Bartlett and Cordova and Collierville and stuff like that. Um, there's houses out there you can get for 145, 170, which I would have never bought before. Our highest price we ever paid was 120. Um, and our mortgage on that's like seven something. But I could get a property for, you know, 160, 170 in my mortgages, still 700. So because interest rates are so low. So it kind of does balance out. You don't get the 1% rule technically, but you're getting the cash flow like, like you would if it was the 1% rule. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me that that the inventory in Memphis has, sounds like the inventory, there's a lot less inventory for sale. Oh my gosh, yeah. it's ridiculous. Yeah. Houses are, go, I mean, well, also what I will say for all those agents out there in Memphis that might be listening to this. <laughs> You put your house in the market at, let's say, 11 o'clock a.m. and you say offers are due at six. Okay, who's going to have time to go see it? (laughs) I don't understand. They're not even given 24 hours before offers are due and they're getting multiple offers. And we, we put in a few offers last week and they weren't high enough. I mean, I'm talking people are wanting 20,000 over asking. It's like, I don't know Mm. if I can do that, you know, so... um, (laughs) Yeah, that's it's a crazy. List ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. So, so I would say like, this is an interest, interesting topic. So how do you buy properties in a really hot market, right? We're in a really hot market right now. There's not enough inventory. If you're shopping for deals right now, how, how do you land deals and it, and it worked for you? I'd love to hear your thoughts and I have some thoughts on it as well. Sure. So obviously everyone and their mother is cold calling, cold calling, cold calling, cold calling. That's the thing. Well, guess what? You know what I do with those cold callers? You know what I do? What? I say, I, I, well, they text me. They mostly text me. If they call, I don't even answer it. But if they text me, they say, Hey, do you, we would really love to buy this house. Do you want to sell your house? I say, no, but add me to your list, please. That's exactly (laughs) what I say. I get on all the wholesalers. list. I say, no, thanks. Don't put me on your buyer's list. (laughs) They're like, dang it. Another one. I know another one bites the dust, but so everyone talks about cold calling and, and I do, I get a lot of DMS and Instagram asking, you know, I'm having a hard time finding properties. So this is what I tell all my students. And this is what they've been having success with lately is people are scared of the MLS, right? Because the MLS is saturated. Everyone knows about it, but 
like, this is my little trick. This is my freebie here. People just dismiss pendings and contingents. They dismiss them. When you see a listing that says pending or contingent, you say, oh, stupid, it's already sold. Skip, skip, skip. Well, don't skip those. Get your spreadsheet out, write down those addresses and the names, you know, the street names, write down the day. You got to pay attention to your market. Write down the day that they went pending on the MLS because they just have to put them pending within so many hours. And then in less than 10 days, which is when, you know, the um, inspection period is usually 10 days, although there also might be sometimes with counters between them. So usually within a week, I will go back and call those pendings and contingents and ask them, hey, or if you're, a, you know, if you have an agent, have your agent call obviously and say, hey, how is that going, that, uh, that, that uh, deal going with your buyer? Do you think that it's going to fall through or do you think it's going gonna, it's gonna to be okay? And the listing agent will either say, oh yeah, it's fine. It, it's going to go through. Or they'll say, you know what? It's not going good. I'm about to put it back on the market. And that's when you swoop right in and say, oh, don't do that. Can I take a look at it today, right now? We want to make an offer on it. And that's how we got our last property. And that's how my students are getting their properties just by calling the pendings and contingents because people just dismiss them as sold, that they're already sold, but they're not. A lot of them go back on the market because that people they'll lose their jobs or you know, financing, or maybe they didn't like what they saw in the inspection or whatever. There's so many reasons people would back out and you can be right there to save the day. That's a great tip. I love that tip. Yeah, finding a creative way to not do what everybody else is doing is always a better way to find stuff, in my opinion. I'm all um, about the least amount of work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> in that situation, all you got to do is call the agent. You don't have to do a bunch of work on that. Call the agent. If the agent says, yeah, we're going to close. Thank you. Hang up. Call the next yep. one. Right. So you could spend 20 minutes calling all these agents. You may find one that's just falling out and you're going to be able to get it and not have all that bidding war stuff going on. That's so, right. And okay. So, and here's, here's a couple tips that we've used buying stuff that we find to be a good deal. So first, first piece of advice I would give you uh, if you're shopping for deals in competitive markets is just know what you're willing to pay. Okay. It has nothing to do with the sales price. Absolutely nothing to do with the sales price. The sales price is just literally what the seller has decided to put it out for. You may, you may decide that this property to you is worth 180. Maybe they're selling it for 140. So you don't want to go in there and say, Hey, I'll give you 180. But if it's going to be a competitive bidding war and you know it's going to go for above 140, knowing that you're willing to pay up to 180 is important, right? So know first of all what you're willing to pay. But if you let's say that let's say that you get into a bidding war on this property and it goes up to 155, okay? And they say we don't know if it's going to appraise, and you 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 have comps. You're like I know it's going to appraise. Here's an idea for you to be able to close it and give yourself a competitive advantage against everybody else. Instead of going in there and saying. I'm going to do an inspection. I'm going to use conventional financing. I'm going to do all this stuff that everybody else is doing. Probably all the other, all the other offers. Go find yourself a hard money lender. Offer cash to that person. Say, I'll take this cash. I'm going to do a walkthrough. I'm going to get an inspection done, but I'm not asking you to fix anything. I'll get my inspection done just so I know what I got to fix, but it has nothing to do with you. I'm buying it as is. Now, now this is just what we've done. You don't have to do this, but this is just an idea. Use the hard money to pay them 155. You're going to pay some points. So maybe you end up in it at 160, but you're willing to pay 180. You just won that deal and created $20,000 of value for yourself there and gave yourself an advantage over all these other people that are going traditional financing. That seller was able to close in cash and they knew it was going to close. And then we're going to have this issue where they're afraid it's going to appraise low. So that's just one, one way you can compete. Another way is doing what you're saying finding some 
some little nuance and going after that where call the pendings or call expireds, right? Call expired. Mm-hmm. That's another yep. great one. There aren't a lot uh, of those right now, but yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> There's not a lot of expired right now. But uh, yeah, if you call an expired, try to figure out why it expired. Maybe there's something really yeah. wrong with it. But um, you know, most real estate problems are fixable. So, um, oh, another little tip on the back of what you said, using an escalating clause. Yes, absolutely. You know, even We've if done you that can too. be, yeah, I mean that's great. And honestly, I'm embarrassed to say I didn't really know about escalating clauses until like a year and a half ago. I'm like, yeah. is this a new concept? I used to be a real estate agent. I've never heard of this in my life. I'm I'm but always they're pretty so, brilliant. They are. And let's talk about what an escalation clause is. Tell us what an escalation clause is. Sure. So an escalation clause is when you offer, let's say, $100,000, but you're willing to go up to one forty, let's mm-hmm. say, but you don't want to offer one forty off the bat. So you say, you know, I will, my offer price is $100,000, but I'm willing to go up, you know, to one forty and in $1,000 increments, you know, or $1,000 above your highest asking, your highest offer price. So if someone else comes in at one twenty. And my offer was 100. I'm letting you know that I will go to 122 or whatever you know it is, up to 140, a thousand higher than the last guy, mm-hmm. or whatever you put. And in I terms. always ask them. I always ask them to produce the second highest oh, offer, yes. because they if you don't do that, it. yeah, if you don't do that, they're magically the other <laughs> offer is magically going to be 139,000, right? Yeah. They, yep. Uh, so I'm always like curious, like, is this a legit second offer that they're sending me? But um, anyway, uh, yeah, the escalation clause right now is actually something that I've had to use, which I hadn't used it before. I've used it once. And it, this market mm-hmm. right now is, is insane. So, you know, I think it's about, nuts. you know, people kind of deliberate on are we in a bubble or not? And so here are my thoughts. I'd love to hear your thoughts. My thoughts are that we are not. OK, and here's why. Right now, the prices are a function of there not being enough properties like before in 08. Like I was doing appraisal work. I owned properties then. That was a completely different animal. That was a function of people being able to get loans that couldn't afford to buy stuff, right? Right, subprime lending. Subprime, yeah, big short. Go watch that movie. You'll see it was a function of that kind of stuff. Right now, the people that are buying stuff are actually qualified to buy. There's just not enough properties right now. And so the problem we're having right now is that values are escalating quickly because there's a lot more buyers than there are sellers, there's a lot, there's a lot fewer properties than there are buyers that want the properties. So those are my thoughts. What are your thoughts? Mine are the same. I don't think that all of a sudden we're going to have a bubble burst and the housing market's going to drop. Um, and I think that people that are buying houses are qualified. Like you said, there is not subprime lending. People aren't using loans with stated income, just saying they make 300,000 a year to buy that million dollar property. You know, they don't have that. People that are buying properties now can afford them. They can afford the mortgage payments. They're qualifying for them. The problem, I mean, the issue is, is inflation. Um, the free money that's being printed um, is making costs go up. The low interest rates makes it super affordable. So I think that when interest rates do start to rise, I think we might see housing prices not continue to escalate at this rapid rate. They might start to slow down a little bit with how fast they are appreciating in value because it will not be as affordable to buy when the interest rate goes back to 5%. So, I mean, that is inevitable. Interest rates will rise eventually. So I think when we start seeing interest rates rising, we might see housing prices stop, you know, growing so quickly. I kind of look forward to that. <laughs> I, know. I look forward to that. Here's why. Here's why I look forward to that. My All my single family stuff is on 30-year fixed conventional loans. Those rates aren't changing. So if rates go up a little bit and housing starts cooling off a little bit, I can buy stuff at a better price. So I know, uh, it's kind of annoying right now because those of us who have been buying and want to keep buying 
we're now competing with this mania that's going on and it's like a little bit annoying like get out of my sandbox and go do something else you know it's like no i don't know um but anyway you know it's you're preaching to the choir on on the money supply and the printing of money and stuff and the low interest rates this is insane i put this on my uh, instagram stories the other day by the end of the printing that's going on right now with the stimulus checks that were already sent out okay not the ones that are coming there right. is there is has been a 40% increase in the money supply since 1 year ago. So we're talking about all the money all the money that existed here in the US 1 year ago there is 40% more 1.4 times that old money supply. So what is that going to do to the cost of everything? Like there's more dollars wow. floating well, yeah. around. There's more dollars floating around that. to buy everything, right? So I, I don't know. You're seeing lumber costs go up. So new building is costing more. You can't find contractors. It's just this perfect storm for real estate markets to, uh, to, to the prices just to go crazy. And then you also have the people who had started building houses. They stopped it back in March because they didn't know what was going on for the exact same reason that we were dealing with on these flips. So the supply of new houses is not even coming online as fast as they need it. So it's kind of this weird situation right now where we've got low interest rates. We've got way more dollars floating around for people to buy with. Prices of things are going up. And that's why I'm a big proponent of like, hold on to your real estate. Hold on to hard assets because as the dollar becomes inflated, the real estate is going to be a hedge against that. It's going to go up in value because you have more dollars chasing that property, trying to rent, trying rent to buy prices it. will go up too. Exactly. Rent prices will go up. The value of your real estate will, will go up. On average, now I'm saying there will be some markets where they're in bad markets, something bad happens locally, yeah. But I'm saying on average. So um, so yeah, yeah, I have the same opinion you do on that. Okay, so we're at about 45, 50 minutes. So I, I tend to try to wrap up here. This has been an awesome conversation. Where can people find out more about you and connect with you? I know you're doing coaching and that kind of thing. Sure. So I'm mainly on Instagram every day. Unfortunately, I'm stuck to my phone. No. <laughs> I'm always on the IG. Um, so I'm at Brick by Brick Wealth. So you can find me on Instagram. I also have a free Facebook group, Create Passive Income with Rental Properties. And I also have a website, brickbybrickwealth.com. If you guys want links to any of that stuff or to send me an email, I'm always happy to DM or chat with anyone who's willing to talk about where they want to go in real estate. And, you know, I help aspiring real estate investors get their first rental property. So definitely open to help and chat with anyone who is looking for some initial guidance. Sweet. Well, Casey, this has been awesome. I love your, uh, I love your energy for real estate. I love the stuff you're putting out online. Keep going. Uh, I'm going to be interested to see what you end up doing with all this. And, uh, we live not far from you guys. So if you guys are in Huntsville, love to meet your husband and you and Absolutely. vice versa. If we're in Memphis, yeah, I'd love to, love to meet you guys. So we got a pool. Come on out for oh, the summer. Well, Hey, my kids are going to be there. They're probably on their way right now. I love it. They, they will bring their goggles. They're obsessed with their goggles. I don't We've know what got it is like about. 600 yeah. pairs of goggles. <laughs> we, my kids are seven, five, and three, and like goggles. You're kidding are, me. No. Mine are nine, seven, and three. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, I, the go it. I don't know what, what the deal is with kids this age, but it's like 95% about their goggles and everything else is like, yeah. so I don't know. That's why we have 600 pairs yeah, of goggles. Yeah, 600 pairs of goggles. All right, well, that sounds like a great place for us to hang out. But Absolutely. Cool. Well, thanks so much, Casey, and we will catch you next time. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please connect with me on Instagram at Daily Real Estate Investor 
or via email at josiasmelser at gmail.com. My new book titled Dream It and Build It, How to Crush Your Real Estate Investing Goals is out. You can get it either in digital or physical format on Amazon. Once you've read the book, please leave me a review. Tune in next time for another episode of The Daily Real Estate Investor as we both join in our financial freedom journey.